Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hey everyone and welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. We've made it all the way to Luke 14. Good for us, good for you, good for the world, you know what I mean? Anyway, um, this is your Bible story podcast for the religiously burned out and the spiritually curious. It's me, Kevin Lester. I'm here. And uh, yeah, we are still asking folks for ratings interviews. We still need them to help promote the podcast. So uh, if you would want to help us out, if you're liking the podcast, please go onto iTunes or Facebook and leave us a rating and a review. So both a star rating, but also a written review. It doesn't have to be long, just a sentence or, or so to let everybody know that we exist and that you like it. Um, if you do that, go ahead and send me a message and you can send it to me on email, which is lofi, L-O-F-I, at kevinlester.net, or you can message me on Facebook through the Lofi Lectionary page. If you send me your address, I will send you a really cool prize in the mail. It's not as cool as the wacky wall walker I got from Corn Pops when I was a kid, but I, I still think it's pretty great. By and large, so many of you have been so supportive of the podcast, and I really appreciate it. And, and you, you don't mean to be cruel, you never even knew about the heartache I've been going through, and I try and try to forget you, girl, but it's just so hard to do every time you do that thing you do. That's a quote from a song from my favorite band that I learned about when we were living in Pennsylvania. Sarah, do you remember those guys? I think they were called the O-Neaters? Hey, that's O-Netters. Oh, sorry. Just remember, right now we aren't lo-fi lectionary. We're Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. Well, before we go ahead and start Weekend at Party Pier, I mean Luke 14, we need to kind of go over a little bit of history before we dive into the text. And what we need to go over is about a historical group that lived about the time that Jesus was around called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, the Essenes. And the Essenes were an ascetic movement within Israel. So they were like a Jewish ascetic movement. So like, um, you know, the later Christian church would have like monastic movements, like where monks and stuff like that, like lived whenever they went and lived like outside of the main cities and stuff like that, like they lived in the wilderness, that would be considered an, an ascetic movement. And that's what these Essenes were. So they would kind of like start a religious community, but like move outside of the main like places people lived kind of out to the wilderness where, uh, they could like start their new religious community. We started a couple centuries before Jesus and continued on through his life. Um, and they were kind of like a bunch of different groups, but but they often had similar characteristics. Um, so they've been grouped together under the, the name Essenes for a lot of different groups. Um, and some common traits of Essene groups were that they would take on voluntary poverty. So they would surrender all of their possessions and any money and stuff like that they have to the community itself for the community to use. Um, now this community was kind of a separatist community cause it was so when you gave up your possessions, you were giving it to the community itself. So it'd be like if, um, if you like joined some sort of hippie commune, you know, but you brought all your stuff with you and you, you maybe sold your house and stuff back home. And when you joined that hippie commune out in the, out in the sticks or something, you would, you would give everything up for the communal purse or something like that. So it's voluntary poverty in that kind of way. Um, the second is that they would, um, often practice daily immersion. So they were really into like being purified religiously but also physically as it connected to their religious life and their spiritual beliefs so they would bathe every day so there was like it would be like people baptizing themselves you know every day which i mean some people within israel you know were big on on being clean or cleansing but like every day would be like kind of a big deal um one scholar said that they they believed in what they called radical purification, you know, and, and that this cleansing was part of it. So, for instance, there are some of the groups, it's recorded that they didn't allow pooping 
on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was holier than other days and you didn't want to um, non-purify, you didn't want to like defile the Sabbath itself, so no pooping allowed. <laughs> I've said pooping now three times on this podcast. Anyway, um, and so they had really strict law-keeping, especially regarding the Sabbath. They had lots of rules for the Sabbath and about who was allowed to come into the community and who was, allowed, who was kept out of it um, and stuff like that. And often these groups arose out of, but then also within their community developed a really, what we're going to call a radical eschatology. So they had a lot of beliefs about like what was going to happen at some sort of apocalyptic end of history. And they would often um, read um, texts from the scriptures and emphasize those that kind of talked about any kind of a day of atonement, day of judgment, about, you know, God coming and kind of wrapping things up, stuff like that. And they would kind of prepare themselves for it. So it's kind of like uh, when I was a kid, I remember the Heaven's Gate, <laughs> you know, where kind of kind of did that. They all got together and they all wore those shoes and, uh, you know, they were all like ready for some sort of big ap apocalyptic end. Um, none of those are very great analogies, but those are kind of like different kind of modern day just equivalents for certain parts of it. So those are the Essenes. Um, we're actually going to compare some of the things that Jesus teaches to some of the things that they did and the ways that they lived. And that's going to come up as we go on. So that was a quick primer on the Essenes. And all right, here we go. Let's go ahead and jump right on into the text. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy, and Jesus asked the lawyers and the Pharisees, Is it harmful to cure on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, If one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. So here we have uh, first little scene of the chapter, and um, it's just on one occasion. So remember, Luke sometimes um, organizes the events of Jesus's life by theme. So it's like, oh, one time, you know, and this happens to be a dinner scene. Um, so Jesus is having meal at the house of a Pharisee. So a Pharisee invited him over. Um, so that's that's cool. You know, again, we kind of ended in the last chapter kind of commenting on that. It seems like there are some some good um, Pharisees. I mean, certainly I think, you know, most of the Pharisees probably had good motives. Like they wanted to do what's right and do its best, but they get into conflict with Jesus over what that looks like or how to live that out or things like that. Um, and one of them is at least responding very well to Jesus invites him over. Um, you know, he, he invites him over for, uh, you know, remember when you invite someone over for a meal in that time, you were inviting them to have like intimate fellowship, like with you, like to have a real strong, like close connection. Um, and if their motives were otherwise, like, you know, does they, they were watching him closely, like that's kind of an ambiguous phrase, like, you know, are they kind of like testing him? And that's like why they invited him over to see if they could catch him in something or something like that. Or are they just like really interested, like earnestly, like curious about what Jesus is going to do? Um, it's kind of left open. If the motives were otherwise, like if they had ill motives towards Jesus, it would repulse ancient readers to hear that they invited him over for the purpose of catching him. Like that would be kind of gross and disgusting of a person to do. Um, so if that's what Luke is trying to get across, like you have to imagine if, if, if you were one of his early readers, like you would be he hearing this book read to you in a community, you'd be like, Ugh, like, I can't believe they did that, you know, especially on, for a Sabbath meal. Like that would be something that should be kept sacred and not used for any kind of ill purpose. Um, but for all, all we know, it could just be neutral. It could just be that they, um, you know, invited this prominent teacher over, which would be considered a virtuous thing to do. But that could also be more about like you gaining respect than on like being particularly hospitable. 
we don't really know. But um, for the benefit of the doubt, you know, at least in this moment, I'm going to say, you know, and I think some of the Pharisees just really wanted to hear what, out what he, what he had to say. So let's see what happens. Um, uh, while, while he's there, you know, they're eating and they're hanging out. Um, and there's a man who has dropsy. Um, dropsy, um, depending on how your your Bible translation has it, um, is a translation of, of what we call edema today. I hope I said that right, because it's one of those words with like an E-A sound thing that messes me up. But anyway, um, so it's edema, um, which is when your body swells somewhere from having excessive fluids in it. And so there's a person with this condition, but they're at the party and they're kind of in front of Jesus, which was a position of, you know, of, you know, if this person was that shows that this person was probably invited directly to this party and was considered, you know, a, a, an equal guest or something like that. So maybe that also says something about the Pharisee that invited Jesus over, that he didn't turn someone away because they had, you know, dropsy, you know, or, or, or something like that. Which is So so maybe this person's kind of cool. Maybe this is like a, a, a cool, hippy-dippy, progressive Pharisee or something like that. Um, and Jesus sees the guy and he uses it for a little teaching moment. You know, again, Jesus' worst house guest. Um, you know, Hey, is it, is it lawful to, to cure on the Sabbath or not? You know, and they're all quiet, you know, um, cause they're kind of watching to see what he's going to do. And so Jesus heals the guy and then sends the guy away, you know, go celebrate, you know? Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that's just kind of interesting, you know, and he make, he, he makes the point home and we've actually heard Jesus teach this almost exact same thing before, you know, Hey, if one of you guys is a child or an ox, that's fallen to the well. You won't care if it's Sabbath or not. You're going to, you're going to save that thing. And so that's what Jesus is doing. And again, Jesus is also kind of indicating the way that he sees, um, these needy people, needy people are like his children, like they're his responsibility. And that's kind of interesting. Um, now on the Sabbath, um, some Pharisees believed that it was okay to generally Pharisees did. They believed it was okay to rescue an animal or a kid that falls into a well. Like, like it doesn't matter if it counts as work, you get that per person or animal out to save them. Now the Essenes didn't. So they actually pr forbid rescuing an animal, even if it was the, if it was the Sabbath. Um, so if your animal or donkey, you know, I don't know about children. I didn't see anything about that, but if your animal falls into a well and you're in a scene, you're one of these ascetic people that's like divorced yourself from, from the regular flow of life to go out and live this, this radical life in this, in this radical religious community. That was one of the rules. Like you let that animal die if it has to, you know, or you can go back tomorrow, I guess, and see if it, if it made it out. Um, so there are different factions within Israel that agree or disagree with Jesus. And here the Pharisees actually agree with him. And so he's kind of hammering it home that, um, that, hey, this is something we agree on. And so this is a good thing that I just did. We should all celebrate this. This is pretty cool. Like Jesus starts what's going to become a, a longer block of teaching by highlighting something that he and his audience agree on, which is interesting. Um, whether that's Jesus having, you know, genuine empathy, you know, on a part of these guys, or whether it's a, uh, a tactic or strategy for kind of what he's about to teach them here, um, you can decide for yourself. Well, let's go ahead and continue on. When Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor at the banquet, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may have to come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. Wah, wah. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, 
They may say to you, Friend, move up higher! Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So this sounds very familiar. In just the last chapter, we had the first will be last and the last will be first. Here it's all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. It's rising and lowering language. Like we got way back at the beginning of Luke um, in Mary's song. She sings about how, you know, some are going to be lowered and he's going to raise up the lowly and stuff like that. So here we actually have Jesus teaching that in kind of a very practical, everyday kind of way. So what Jesus is doing here is he's turning the banquet into what they called in the ancient world a symposium. At least in the Greek world, they called it that. It's when they would have public teaching in the context of a banquet or meal. And this were actual events that people would have and would schedule. But it could also be that Luke is using um, the symposia as a literary device for placing Jesus' teachings in a context that his Greek audience would really understand. Like, oh yeah, it's a symposia, you know. Um, We don't really know. But Um, And the teaching is on these concepts of honor and social status, which were hugely important to people in antiquity, like in these ancient cultures in Israel and Greek and Rome and stuff like that, like social status and this concept of honor were like the way that life was ordered and the way that life was carried on like well and the way that you lived, like were ordered by what social status you had. And so as people arrive at this banquet, even amongst the people who are invited, who all would have been of a certain social status already, like there's a certain rank to how they're supposed to sit and you do not break this rank and so Jesus actually comments on that you know he notices people as they're coming in and out of the banquet that they all like all like you know move around and shuffle around and find you know the place where they should be um and again so this is Jesus as being like not sin bad this is like Jesus is the worst house guest <laughs> which is a reference for like my siblings and no one else but anyway um you might get it anyway um so um You know, in the teaching, he gives this idea of, you know, when you show up somewhere, like sit lower than you think you should. Don't sit higher than you think you should. So that way you always are being raised up and never being lowered down and embarrassed. And this is actually a social custom that comes from the Old Testament scripture. So in Proverbs 25, um, there's actually, you know, a a, a rule. Proverbs is a book of just these wise quotes. So they're not really like God's laws, but they're just like wise ways to live your life according to to their age. And um, in Proverbs 25, it has this rule that's like, hey, don't sit too high. Go ahead and sit low and maybe you'll be raised up. Like that's that's just a wise way to live, you know. And so Jesus actually begins with that. So again, Jesus is beginning by quoting their common scripture. He's beginning his teaching by quoting something that they all generally should be agreeing on. Now, whether or not they're living that out is one thing, but it's a it's a piece of their law. It's like, hey, like, hey, you know how it said this? Like, do that, you know. Um He's starting with the places they agree. Um, and it's all social custom and, ru- and rules and just kind of wise ways to live until he gets to the end where Jesus adds something to what's normally found in Proverbs 25. He adds this phrase, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, this is actually from a different Old Testament teaching on what's going to happen on the quote unquote day of judgment. Like people who exalt themselves, prideful people, you know, proud people, stuff like that, will be humbled by God, the judge. And all those who are humbled themselves, you know, the lowly, the meek, the gentle, stuff like that, will be exalted, you know. And so he takes this social custom and then adds a theological statement to the end of it. And here again, we see Jesus using this tactic when he teaches ethics 
and he teaches how people should live or people who want to be part of his movement are supposed to be living. He uses God's own behavior as a standard or a model. Like people, um, you know, God is going to judge and God raises up and lowers people and stuff like that. And so you should always like humble yourself, you know, so that way God will kind of raise you up, you know, stuff like that. Um, like it's, it's, it's people should act according to how God is. So God raises up lowly people and, and, and lowers exalted people. And so use that as your model, everybody like go and, and, and raise up the lowly, you know, um, is how Jesus teaches, which is really interesting. Um, there, the, the, the way that people are supposed to live and live well is always modeled after the character and the behavior of God first for Jesus. It's kind of interesting. Let's continue on in the story. Jesus said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, a luncheon, a luncheon or a dinner, that's what it says in the text, a luncheon. I thought that that was like a 90s, like a businessman term. But anyway, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteousness of the righteous. Sorry. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Um, so Jesus has this idea that, um, Jesus, again, continuing to be the greatest house guest ever, um, turns to the one who had invited him and criticizes how he's invited people. <laughs> Like, I, I like Jesus, but I don't know if I want him in my house because it just seems like if you invite him over, you're setting yourself up for trouble. But um, he says, he basically his teaching is, hey, don't invite your fellows. Don't invite the people in the same status as you. Don't invite people in the same status or higher status. You know, your friends, your brothers, you know, or your relatives. Don't invite your rich neighbors. And in their time, that would be an offensive thing to do. Like if you threw a party and then didn't invite, you know, your, your neighbors and, and relatives, you know, your brothers, your friends, like they had the right to be upset with you because that's not cool. That's not okay. Like throwing banquets and parties and stuff like that was part of their, just their, their, their daily ritual, part of their everyday life. This is how our community functions. And if you don't invite the people who you're supposed to, like that's, that means you're not doing it right. Like, and they should, they have the right to be offended, which is really interesting. Um, and so it's common for well-to-do folks um, in their time to invite certain, some certain other respectable lower class people to your party. So occasionally, like, like okay, if you were throwing a banquet, you invite all of your relatives, brothers, friends, you know, rich neighbors, stuff like that. Then occasionally, if you wanted to be like ex extra spiritual um, and kind of demonstrate your righteousness, you would invite like a select group of some lower class people, but they'd have to be like respectable lower class people, like people who are generally kind of cleaned up and had their stuff together, you know, stuff like that. Um, Jesus here goes further than that. And he says, no, like don't invite people in the same class as you and don't cherry pick people from a lower class. You should lean into inviting all the non quote unquote respectable for their time lower class people that you can fill your house with crippled lime lame blind folks as much as you can and invite those people first and so jesus is really teaching something that would have been considered offensive to people they'd be like what uh, you 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 you're telling me that you're following god's way and you're telling me not to be nice and generous with my friends and my 
relatives and stuff like that, but that I should fill my house with, with all of the, these people, like the people that don't deserve it. That's, that doesn't make sense. You know, like this would be a very challenging lesson to people at the time. I still think it is, but it'd be very challenging to people at the time. Um, and we're going to make another note here that if you are an Essene in the Essene community, crippled, lame, and blind folks weren't even allowed to join or come on the, on the property of your community. They did occasionally find ways to practice like charity, like selectively, but they didn't invite those people even to come and be with them and by any means, much less at like an honored banquet, which is kind of interesting. Um, so Jesus is here more agreeing with the Pharisees than with the Essenes, but he's also kind of pushing the Pharisees and these teachers of the law to go even a little bit further. And keep in mind that Jesus has been invited over to this house as an honored guest, as a high class, you know, potentially person, or at least a fellow of these Pharisees. And Jesus is here kind of teaching. I mean, the teaching between the lines is, it would have been better for you to invite poor people and crippled people than to invite me over. Like, I know I'm an honored teacher, but you could have made a better choice. And so again, Jesus, just the, the worst the worst person to have over if you want to, if you want to maintain all of your dignity, <laughs> kind of not be put in your place, but that's the way Jesus is. It's kind of interesting. Um, and so again, Jesus kind of teaches, um, a, a very similar ethical teaching to what we've heard from him before, where he's saying, give to everyone who asks and don't expect repayment. Like he laid that out earlier in Luke. I think it's in Luke five or six, you know, where he's like, Hey, give and never expect repayment you know, give, give generously to everyone who asks. And here Jesus is kind of bringing that up again. And he's like, Hey, when you invite people over, give without, without asking anything in return. In fact, go out of your way to find the people who definitely can't ever repay you because you're going to get something better. Like again, Jesus has already brought up like the two treasure things, like, like, you know, um, that, that there's a better treasure, we caught that in an earlier chapter of Luke, than, than money or in possessions or stuff like that. And Jesus is here kind of hammering away on that theme again. He's like, you're going to get something better than you could ever get, you know, money-wise or honor-wise from, from other people. You're going to get repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Like, you're going to get repaid by God, God's self, you know, um, which is a big deal. Let's go ahead and continue on in the story. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said to him, oh, this is one of my favorite parts. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said to him, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. <laughs> then Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. And at the time for dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first person said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going out to try them out. Please accept my regrets. And another said, um, I've just been married and therefore I cannot come. <laughs> so the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of this town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the slave said, sir, what you have ordered has been done and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and the lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who are invited will taste my dinner. <laughs> um, 
So here's another next little teaching block. And it starts off with, you know, Jesus gives, you know, this this teaching at the symposia. And someone has to open their big mouth. And um, this has already happened a couple of times in Luke. I think it happened once. One of my favorite times it happens. It happens, um, it was on the John Chafee episode where he hosted. So I didn't get to point this out. But Jesus will often give public teachings. And if someone from the crowd, like an unidentified person, opens their mouth, oh my goodness. That it's 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 always setting it's up for Jesus to give kind of a hilarious response. <laughs> um Jesus like always uses like this public kind of praise, like this public spiritual ease that people sometimes just spit out of their mouths, um, as a chance to really twist the teaching and mess with people's heads. Um so there's kind of this weird, like, spiritual non sequitur. Blessed is anyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God, you know. Um, and let's see how Jesus responds. Um, Jesus then proceeds to give a teaching where he's kind of like, well, probably none of you are going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. Um, you know, in a sense. Um, he, so he gives a kind of a rough, kind of funny response to this guy who just wanted to kind of like sound good, you know, at the at the banquet, you know, like sound spiritual. I don't know if any of you guys are from a religious tradition where people do stuff like that. They shout things out like that or they maybe um, talk if there's someone ever giving a sermon out, mm-hmm, or amen, you know, or that's right, preach, you know. It's like this is someone kind of doing the ancient Israelite version of that. And Jesus is like, oh, you, you, you like what I'm saying, huh? And then he takes it one point further to where everyone's going to become uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, so let's, let's dig into this. So Jesus gives this new parable about this, this heavenly banquet and looking at the kingdom of God as a banquet is actually a very common image. Um, in their culture, it starts off kind of in the old Testament as early as the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah kind of pictures the kingdom of God, especially when it comes in its fullness, like at the end of time as being like a banquet, like a big party. Um, so it's all over some places in the Old Testament. And here Jesus uses that language very directly. Um, so he's like, okay, there's going to be a banquet. And uh, and guests have already been invited, but now it's time for dinner. So the way that this is set up, in antiquity, you would actually send out invites when you threw a banquet. You would plan way far ahead because banquets were a big deal. Like if you're going to throw a banquet... Like you had to prep in advance. You had to make sure you had, this was like the biggest thing you did all year. You were in charge of all these hosting duties. And so you needed to know who was going to come and how many people. You had, to, you had to provide for this party at your house. Sometimes these parties would last many, many days. So you had to plan ahead. Um, so, um, and it would be really embarrassing for you to not have planned well. So you would send out invites and all these guests would have RSVP said, yes, I'm going to be there. So now it's time for them to come. So you would send out, you know, a messenger to kind of gather everybody together for the banquet, you know, to let everybody know that it's time. Um, and even though all of these guests have RSVP'd, like they've all said, yes, I'm going to be there. One by one, they all have excuses as to why they're not going to come and to cancel plans um, with this late of notice would be a grievous insult to the dignity of the host. So this is really, really bad what you're doing. So this is very dishonorable what you're doing to the host. Um, and let's look at the excuses in particular. So the first guy, um, he says, um, I just bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Um, so if you're a new landowner, like if you just bought land, um, you wouldn't have to go and inspect it. Um, before the deal was brokered, like before they bought it, they would have already ins inspected the land. Like that was the normal custom. Or in some cases, they would make purchases of land contingent on a future inspection. So you could actually buy the land and make the deal and then go inspect the land whenever you're ready. And if there's something wrong, you could, you could get out of the deal. Um, 
So this guy, not a great excuse. Cause he's like, well, I bought this land and I have to go out and see it. So it's like, no, you don't, you should have already done that. Or you can do that in the future. So there's no inspection necessary. Um, and so this guy, lame excuse, grievous insult to the host. So the servant goes on to the next person who says, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Um, so there's the new oxen owner. If this person now owns five yoke of oxen in their culture, this person must be extremely wealthy. Like it's not an accident that Jesus is like, oh, this person has five yoke of oxen. Like Jesus is painting the picture of someone who is just like the wealthiest person, you know, like around, you know, and this person's excuses. Well, I just bought these oxen. I, I have to go break them in. I have to go set them up for work. If this person is extremely wealthy, they don't have to, they don't, this is not a person who breaks in their own oxen, you know? Um, this person is not a hands-on landowner, except they come up with this excuse to not go to the banquet. Um, and it, it would be inconceivable that this person would have to go break in this oxen by themselves, but here they are. That's their excuse. So again, lame excuse number two, this, this, this guy's a chump, grievous insult to the host. And then the third person, <laughs> this is my favorite. I have just been married and therefore I cannot come. Read into that whatever subtext you want. <laughs> but um, so there's a newlywed person, and um, okay, this is actually kind of fun. In the Old Testament law, so in 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 the customs of these people, if you were newlywed, you could actually get out of being drafted. So if the if the country was going to war, you could be like, "Well, I was just married," and they thought that being just married and starting your family and going and and starting to have kids because there's because they wanted you to have as many kids to kind of help grow the country as possible. Um, you got out of going to war. Um, so this person is trying to use the war excuse. I've just got married and therefore I can't come. Um, which would have been an invalid excuse if the servant was coming to take this person to war, but it's not war. It's a feast. It's a banquet. Now, if this person is, if the subtext of this is that they've like just been married, like their wedding feast is still going on. That is still not a valid excuse. Like these feasts and these banquets were planned out far, far, far in advance. And so they, if they accepted the invitation, they would have known when it was going to be. And so therefore they shouldn't have planned their wedding feast at the same time without grievously insulting the host, which is exactly what they've done. So all three of these people, the landowner, the oxen owner, and the new person, terrible excuses, like are really dishonoring like their friend who was trying to be really generous towards them and throw a banquet. So again, in this parable, if God is, if, if Jesus is characterizing God as like a banquet owner, he's trying to invite all these people and who have already have a place there. Like they've have an invite, like, and they've already accepted it, but now they always find these excuses for not going and following through on their commitment. Um, and uh, so this teaching really plays off of some stuff from the last chapter, because at the end it kind of wraps up with, um, you know, the, the God figure, the banquet owner, is totally unsatisfied with not having people come in and enjoy this amazing banquet that they've planned, and they have all these you know, this food for and this time for and these structures and tents and stuff like that for. So he's like, go out into the streets and get anyone who will come. Get the poor, get the crippled, get the blind and the lame. These people that all don't have invitations because they're not normally invited to things. And we're going to fill this house. And the slave comes back and says, okay, we've gotten everyone we could find and there's still room. And the master's like, that's not acceptable. 
you guys go out and you search the roads and the lanes and you compel people to come in. Please beg them, become the beggars yourselves, win them over to fill up my house because I'm not satisfied until everyone can have what I want to offer them, which is really interesting. So again, it plays off of the teaching from the last chapter of um, we had we had a banquet scene in the last chapter where um, Jesus says people will come from north and south and east and west will come from all over to take places and will be invited through the gates and some other people who thought they should be in, inside are going to be shut out. Remember that story? So it's the same kind of language and the same kind of themes of people are going to come from all over. All the least expected people will get in and all the expected and presumed people will come out. Now, again, Jesus is also taking that the story from the last chapter even further, because in the last chapter, people were like surprised. They're like, oh, I, I should have a place in there, but I'm not invited. What's up with that? Here, Jesus is like, well, the people who don't get in are the people who choose not to come in. Like they've all found other treasures. They've all found other things and they're not coming in and they all have poor, sorry excuses, but they're going to miss out on the party. So go find everyone. Who can who you can get, and for a land, you know, uh, someone throwing a banquet to go and invite people off the street that was unheard of. That would have been a weird thing for Jesus to say should happen. But G- parables often have surprises at the end, and the original audience would have been surprised and shocked that that's what the banquet owner would do. So again, the emphasis is not so much on the on the punishment of these people who had lame excuses, you know, that 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 hurt the dignity of the host. Like the host is just like, no, go get other people who will take what I have to offer, which is kind of interesting. And everyone else doesn't get in, but that's kind of their their own choice. It's kind of interesting. Um, and here, all together, with this block of teaching and the one before it, Jesus is really laying into a criticism of the honor and status system that this that the, the these people have that he's working with, like at the time. Like he's saying, like, you guys all come and you sit by rankings and stuff like that, but really the better thing to do would be to go get all the lowest people you can and love and share with them and give them everything that you can, which is kind of interesting. And in fact, those low people are going to get a lot from God that a lot of high people aren't going to get, which is really interesting. Let's continue on with this last little part of the story. Now large, excuse me, now large crowds were traveling with Jesus and he turned and he said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether they have enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. (laughs) Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. (laughs) Um, I don't know why I finished so big on that, but... um, 
So yeah, this this little part. Um, whenever um, Jesus uses the word hate, it's often in hyperbole, like within the context of their teaching. This was a common thing to use words like hate um, to be like a hyperbolic way of saying like love very little or love less than something more important. Um, so what it sounds like Jesus is teaching here is whoever comes to me and does not love less, like their father and their mother or their wife or their children or their brothers, sisters, or even their life itself, then something else can't be my disciple. And it seems like what they should be loving more is like this, this way of Jesus, like, like either Jesus himself or, or, or what he's doing in the world. If they don't think that it's worth loving everything else a little bit less, like letting everything else kind of be a little bit lower and sacrifice some for those things, then they can't really be his disciple. And then, then he follows it with whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So he is kind of, you know, we often talk about Jesus doesn't really draw a line in the sand, but here, here that's kind of what he's doing. You know, he's saying that there's, there's a way that you got to go. Um, and it's with a little bit of hyperbole because, you know, honoring your parents and your family is, was considered the highest obligation. Like you cannot be an honorable person if you don't honor first your parents and your family. And it was like the height of virtue. And it was also like where you were expected to find your greatest joy in life was in your family. Um, you know, in Jewish cultures, they valued family very highly, not just for honor reasons, but also for like, that's, that's what God has given you to make your life good. And so you should enjoy them. Um, and here Jesus is saying those things need might need to, to, to be loved less than other things. Um, so again, Jesus is kind of attacking this, this honor system that says like the people next to you and the people above you, like you need to go and be generous to them and whatever you have left over, you can give to the lily. He's kind of flipping that upside down and saying, no, it actually starts with how you deal with the lowly and how we take care of them. And maybe that means you need to love father and mother, wife and children, brothers, sisters, even life itself less. Just kind of interesting. Um, and this, for, for people to follow through with Jesus's teachings would mean that they would have to become unhonorable or dishonorable or unrespectable people in their culture. And that would be a really hard message for them to hear. Um, because not only, you know, and not further than them even becoming like unrespectable because they're not following through on the expectation that they honor and love their parents and their family, like the highest thing ever. But it also means that they're offering up things that they enjoy. Like if they just enjoy their family and I have to love that a little bit less and, and make my life more about something else, like that's, that's very difficult. And this is all in this context spoken of as being for the sake of caring for the poor, going out and taking care of the lame, the blind, you know, the needy, the poor. Um, people like that. And Jesus is here giving a really hard ethical teaching that people should value their needs, the needs of the poor and the lowly over their own joy, over their own respect and status within their community. And again, it's kind of modeled after how God is because God is the kind of God who surrenders God's joy and God's sense of high status to come down and to care for these people. I mean, that's a big theme in the book of Luke is just how, how like God is high up, but then comes down to engage in a very lowly life with the rest of these people. Like as Jesus is walking around, like he's modeled and has lived out that very teaching, which is kind of interesting. He follows it up with that teaching on carrying the cross. Now carrying the cross, um, crucifixion was just a, a popular form of execution back then. You know, people were, were, were killed on crosses. And as part of the process, you would carry your beam of the cross all the way to like the hill or the place where then they would have the stake and they would hook the beam to the stake. And that's how they would hang you on a cross. Um, 
And Jesus is here using kind of graphic, gross language. He's like, whoever doesn't carry their own beam, you know, and follow me cannot be my disciple. Um, it, it's, 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 he's telling people, if you aren't willing to choose a way that's going to bring you great pain and great shame, possibly, you have to willingly choose it. Like, because it's whoever does not choose to carry their cross. Um, can't be my disciple. And so that's, it's very interesting. Um, and then he, he offers two analogies, which are kind of fun to look at. Um, there's the analogy of the tower. It's like, okay, like, you know, you need to make sure that you're prepared to be one of my disciples before you join in on being my disciple. Cause you might have to give up a lot, you know, in the same way that if you want to be, you know, lifted up, you know, at the end by God, you might have to be prepared to give up a lot of respect and a lot of your, your pleasure and joy now, you know? And so he's, he's like, be, it's like building a tower. You have to sit down and make sure you have all the materials to put together to build the tower before you build the tower. Otherwise, you're going to be mocked by your neighbors. Like, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. I just love the phrasing of that. Um, you know, um, or there's the war one, which is like, okay, before you go to war, make sure you have enough people to beat the other person. Otherwise, you know, if you're smart, you're going to ask for terms of peace. Um, what's kind of interesting in one of the, the pieces of research I came across in this, they were like, they, they mentioned that this analogy of the war might be particularly pertinent to people in Jesus's time, like as Jesus was teaching this, because um, Herod, who just came up in the last chapter as being a fox, recently at the time of Jesus had lost like a big war with a neighboring Roman rival. And so it's kind of fun to consider that maybe Jesus has like a sneaky hidden criticism of Herod and he's using him without name as an analogy, like, or what King would, would be so stupid as to go out and wage war and another King and not sit down first and consider where they, whether they could win, you know, like, which, which I find, I, I hope that that's what it is. Cause that's kind of funny. Um, so, um, you know, at the end, he caps it all off with this phrase. So therefore none of you can become a disciple if you don't give up all your possessions. And, um, you know, this phrase, give up all your possessions. Now, in typical Jewish culture at the time, it was thought that charity was a really, really good thing to do. It like it like demonstrated that you were righteous. But this this idea that Jesus has isn't just charity, it's it's divestiture of all of your property. It's like the surrendering of everything, like giving it up literally. Um and that takes it away further that not a lot of people thought was a good idea. It wouldn't have been seen as wise, certainly but it might not really be seen as righteous by a lot of people in his audience. Um, now the S scenes to bring them up again, because here's like the third or fourth time that th there's common themes between them and what Jesus is teaching did practice radical, you know, divestiture um, for the sake of their community. Like, Hey, if we're all going to live together and survive, you gotta, you gotta surrender to the community. Cause we kind of rule things. And it was kind of a, you know, maybe it's more of an issue of controlling the people than about something else than about charity. But Jesus here calls for a radical divestiture of everything you have for the sake of the poor. Which is something very different because it's not a detachment from your society or your culture or your neighbors. It's in fact, only by giving up all your possessions can you live in a way that truly connects with them and meets their needs, which is really interesting. In the book of Acts, which is the sequel to the book of Luke, you'll actually have to, if, as you continue to read the story, you can read the story through the lens of how do the, how does this early community of people that follow Jesus live out this kind of thing? And there's one little part where it says that it says twice in a row that um, the people sold their possessions and shared all that they had so that no one had any need. Um, so it's, it's all about kind of mutual sharing both within and outside of their community, which is really interesting. Um, 
And Jesus says, um, you know, these people cannot become my disciples. Like Jesus does invite everybody to be his disciple, but here we actually do have Jesus, you know, saying, okay, everyone gets my favor and everyone is invited, but there is a kind of character and a kind of life and a kind of way that we're going to live and act in the world and if you want to be part of what I'm doing, like, let's all not kid ourselves. Let's just decide that that we're going to do that. This is the way it's going to be. And if you want me to be your rabbi, your teacher, you know, your leader, this is what we're doing. It's all about radical hospitality and radical charity towards others. And then he finishes it with this little word picture of the salt. Um, now, what's interesting, um, this comes up in a couple places in the New Testament where Jesus teaches about salt losing its saltiness. The fact of the matter is, is salt can't be not salty. It's like, chemically, it is salt. Um, and so Jesus kind of uses that as an example. Like, if salt were to somehow magically, like, not be salty, like, you can't fix it. Like, there's something really, really wrong with it inherently. Um, and you can't use it for the farm, you know, on the soil or in the manure pile, because it kills, you know, like, it kills vegetation. So you, you just have to find a way to throw it away in the garbage. Um, and you guys, like, if you're going to be part of my movement, we're going to be a certain way. Like, you can't, you can't be half salt. You're either salt or not. You're either going to follow this way of giving up everything you have, or you won't. And if you won't, then you can't kind of come along. You know what I mean? Um, so there's this idea of like non-salty salt. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is the way the movement's going to go. And so Jesus kind of does like present a certain very particular way they're going to live forward from here. Um, but he seems to think that that's like the best way for people to live, which is kind of interesting. Um, that's the end of our text today. Let's go ahead and jump into our lo-fi questions. All right, and lo-fi question number one. Um, what is God like in Luke 14? So what is God like? God has no sense of honor for himself. <laughs> God doesn't seem to care about whether if people respect him or not as some sort of high-class thing. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, at the very beginning, so there's these Sabbath laws, but God seems to think that taking care of people, lowly people, is more important than people following the laws that are supposed to glorify him. So um, God is willing to allow the laws that are supposed to make him seem really important be broken for the sake of caring for people in need. Um, and Jesus kind of follows up on that theme by talking about God as being one who invites everyone to be close to him, to share like an intimate connection with God. Um even if it means inviting people who are normally um, dis considered despicable or um, low class or unwanted or unneeded or things like that. So God is not one of the Essenes where it's like we need to keep those people out. And he's not one of the Pharisees who kind of sometimes it seems like they kind of just let those people hang out around the periphery. God wants those people first, it seems like, and seems to think that they are a much higher priority than other things, even a higher priority than getting what God wants, you know, from people or from being worshiped, you know, or something like that, which I think is really interesting. Like God just doesn't really care about his own honor. He's not kind of in the, in the business of defending his honor. He's actually in the business of showing mercy and favor, which is really Jesus's main focus. I mean, it's caring for people who need it, caring for people who aren't actively experiencing like the goodness and favor of God for whatever reason, whether they're sick or possessed or, you know, ostracized from their community or whatever. Like, like God's main focus is to care for them. 
Um, and that c- continues to touch on the themes we've seen all throughout Luke, where Jesus kind of brings up, hey, like, like be merciful as, as your father is merciful. We're supposed to emulate God's mercy, not God's holiness. And maybe even kind of taking it further and saying that, like, what makes God holy and so special, like so other, so strange, so weird, so important, is that God is so merciful. And it's that merciful action that people are supposed to emulate. Um, which is really, really interesting. I mean, the God character in the parable goes out and sends out for all like the lowly people to come in and get everything that God can offer them. And God never expects to get repaid for it and therefore doesn't teach the people to expect to get repaid for what he gives. Like God in Luke 14 isn't a God who goes around making wise investments in people so he can get back something from them. God is a God who goes around and gives good gifts even to those who can offer him nothing. That's a really interesting God, if that's what God is really like. Um, number two, what is God like? Uh, it's all, God is all about the work of raising people up and occasionally lowering them. So again, this touches on the theme that's all over the book of Luke. It's brought up from the very beginning from Mary's song at the beginning. God, you're the one who will raise up the lowly and will lower the heads of the proud. You know, um, like Jesus is all about the business of, of kind of continually raising up low people, helping them become respected, helping them get what they need to be taken care of, helping like restore them in the midst of a community that has a social structure that constantly keeps them low. And even when Jesus seems to be about the work of lowering people, even when God is kind of taking on that lowering people task, it's all about rightfully raising them up, which is really interesting. Like God's not out to get people who've done wrong. He's lowering them to properly put them in a position high up. So Jesus here teaches people, don't take the high seat. If Even if you're a high esteemed person, take a low seat so that way you can be brought up properly. And that's what you should try and do with God, you know, because um, God is all about the business of raising up low people, which is really, really interesting. Um, and then number, th- number three, what is God like? I mean, just in Jesus kind of sets up these analogies of someone who is building a tower or someone who is waging a war as kind of contrasted um, characters in his parable from, from God. Um, it seems like God isn't in the business of waging war or of building great towers in the book of Luke and in Luke 14. Jesus here is here again giving teachings about God being like one who throws a banquet party and invites everyone inside, even the poor and the lame and the blind and the crippled, and gives them high seats of honor at his table. That seems to be what God is much more interested in doing than in building fancy things or waging war on others. Really interesting. That's what God is like in Luke 14. Um, Lo-fi question number two, what are people like? Uh, Well, we don't get a lot of narrative passages in the story. We just get a lot of Jesus teaching, but in Jesus teaching, it kind of reveals a, a certain way to look at what human people are like. And it seems like in Jesus teachings kind of between the lines here, like people can often do the right things for the wrong reasons or for lesser or poor or even bad reasons. So it kind of is set from the very beginning of the story where have these Pharisees inviting Jesus over for dinner, possibly for, you know, which is a good thing to do, but possibly not for great reasons because they're kind of watching him closely 
and they're kind of silent, so they're not engaging in the debate, you know? Um, so it's like the right thing, but maybe for a not so great reason. And the people throughout the story, you know, are obsessed with honor and with their status. Um, you know, so they invite Jesus over possibly for their own honor and they invite high class, you know, people over and their fellows over so that way they can be honored in the community. And if they do invite lower people or if they nice are nice to poor people, it's kind of charity, like out of their, out of their wealth, you know, so that way they can demonstrate their righteousness and gain more honor, you know what I mean? And honor systems are great ways to kind of control people's behavior, but it's not a great system for encouraging real radical generosity that meets the needs of people who need it the most. And so people in the story can do some of the right things, but for bad reasons. And Jesus seems to think that if they can start doing the right things for the right reasons, it's going to like unlock something very powerful in the world. And it seems like sometimes people do get it right, though, in this story alone. Like, what are people like in the story? Sometimes people do the right things for the wrong reasons, but sometimes maybe people get it right. I mean, even in the context, you have this, this Pharisee who does invite Jesus over and give him a place to teach. And he does invite, or at least has invited, one other person who is a person with like a visible illness. And it seems like Jesus kind of identifies that and maybe is even as he starts to teach is like, hey, guy, like you invited, you know, your your fellow with dropsy over. Do more of this. You're on the right track. Lean into this and go the next step and don't stop inviting over fancy pants folks or your fellows or people who are pay you everything. Go and invite people who are the most needy, who could really use this meal and really use a good time and really use some love right now. And then you'll be repaid at the end by the righteous one. Interesting. Um, number three, why this story? So why um, did people tell these stories about things that Jesus did? Why did they remember them? Why did they eventually tell them to Luke, who had probably a myriad of, of, of stories and then chose to put this one in this place in the story at this time? And then why did people who had all these books written about Jesus choose this book with these stories in it? And why have people read these books for 2000 years and told them to each other and taught them and now make podcasts about them? Like, what is it that people found so captivating about this story, particularly people in Jesus's own time and in Luke's audience? Um, it's kind of tough, but I have a couple ideas. Um, maybe they held on to these stories because if these stories are true and they follow what Jesus teaches here, it creates the, it, it forms them as a community that is in contrast to communities like the Essenes at the time. Like they are not called to be a people that are detached from the commoners. They are not called to be a people who are pure and obsessed with their purity and their honor um, above all else. Um, but instead are to be a community defined by this belief in radical hospitality and in radical generosity towards everyone, towards particularly people who are not really desirable to the rest of the community. And they would kind of keep, maybe they kept this story around because they were like, oh, this is the story that makes us what we are. This is the story that makes us something very different than the other communities in the other ways in the world. And maybe that they kind of held on to these stories because they found that that's what kept them on their course or something like that. Um, maybe they also just kept these stories around idea number two um, because it taught them 
uh, a very interesting and particular practice of getting rid of their positions and having like this radical sharing with each other inside and outside of their community. So if they were already practicing this as a community, they could maybe want to keep the story around because they were like, oh, this is why we do it, because Jesus taught us how to do it. And Jesus taught us how to do this because this is what we believe that God is like in the first place. And we are trying to be like God, so that's why we do this. Like sometimes communities create stories or keep stories or catalog stories because it's something they're already doing that or tells them or adds a story to why do we do this every day, you know? Um, so if you were raising a child in this community, they might ask, well, why are we giving all of our stuff away? You know, and you could be like, well, there's a story in the middle of this book that Luke wrote, you know, where Jesus says, this is what we do. And this is what God is like. And if, if, if they held on to the story, this would constantly be a reminder for them that they believe in a very particular view of God. That's kind of an almost strange kind of God, a God who themselves is radically inclusive towards all people and is radically generous towards all people. And maybe they thought that, they thought that these stories in particular were important to keep around because it reminded them of who they are. Now, I kind of have a question about that, though, because, I mean, you have to imagine that it's these people starting this, like, very vulnerable religion at a time when they might have been persecuted on all sides, you know, inside and outside of Israel, all over Rome, um, for living a very different and strange way. And it would have been very easy for them to drop some of these stories that made them kind of so weird and so different you know, either socially or that maybe some of these stories that just got them in trouble because it, it, it told them that they should be hanging out with the blind and the lame and the crippled, you know, and, and not having parties that raised their status, but parties that actually got them in trouble in their community and in their families. Like they held on to these stories and, and to quote the great um, religious thinker, Eddie Izzard, like that's no basis to start a religion, you know, particularly at a time in the ancient world when, I mean, like, if people didn't like your religion, they could just come wipe you out, you know, um, where poverty was so harsh that you need to do whatever you could to continue to, to feed your own family. And yet here are these peculiar people who are carrying around this story that teaches them and challenges them to be people who are radically hospitable and inclusive towards all people who actually sell their possessions, the things that keep them, give them, maybe give them any moment or feeling of stability to sell it and get rid of it and to surrender maybe the things and love less the things that bring them great joy in order to care for fringe people on the outskirts of town. That's an odd story for them to take heart on and for them to write down and to tell each other and to read and to tell Luke and for him to write down because he thought it was important and for them to all keep telling and telling and telling and nowhere along the way did people, someone say, maybe this isn't a story that we want to keep around. Maybe this isn't something that we want to do. It'd be very easy for us to forget one little part of what Jesus teaches and this is maybe it because it's just too hard. But they did keep this story and it's a story that would challenge them constantly to be and remain a dishonorable people within their own community. So why did they keep this story? I mean, they must have discovered something 
very true and very good within the practice of going out and inviting in the dishonored folks and in surrendering their own respect and surrendering their own status and in surrendering their own possessions, they must have discovered something within that practice that told them that this was worth keeping. And I wonder what they discovered. And maybe is it something that we're missing? That's a good kitchen episode. So maybe we'll talk about that later this week. Um, but that's it. I mean, th- this is the end of Luke 14. We're going to continue on 15. Ooh, you guys, if you've made it all the way through 14, you need to stick around for 15. 15 is going to have some of those popular stories um, that you've ever heard about Jesus. And they're popular for a reason, you guys, because they are so, so good. But that's it for this week. Please come back later this week for the kitchen episode so we can talk about it. Um, I'm going to be out of here in a second. And uh, hey, man, uh, maybe you want to roll tape on this one? I I quit. I quit. I quit. I quit. (laughs) I quit, Mr. White. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review... Subscribe and share the podcast any way you can. Um, The more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. If you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, You can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and and keep things going on there. Uh, Just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Lectionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net. And that's lofi with no dash. So L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again. So at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.